The Hamlet Podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's book club episode in which we conclude our progress through the eight major history plays. I chose to look at these eight plays in historical order, Richard II all the way through to Richard III. This choice, by default, ignored the order in which these plays were written, which is very different, and might even suggest that Shakespeare was writing these plays as tetralogies or theatrical events, something like a live box set. But this isn't the case at all. For the most part, they were individual pieces. The three parts of Henry VI themselves were written out of order, and, as discussed, the four plays that cover the earlier kingly exploits were written after the plays about Henry VI and Richard. All of this is to establish that this week's play, Richard III, is a piece entirely unto itself. Of the history plays, it is the most provocative theatrical experiment – Shakespeare put many English kings on the stage, some of them very famous and popular Henrys, but none of his kings is remotely as fascinating as this Richard. After the slog of the three parts of Henry VI, which I hope you enjoyed in all their bitty glory, you begin to feel the lack of a protagonist. Across the plays, the biggest feeling I got was that there was no leader. Everyone is kind of equal, and they really feel like ensemble plays. If I were to put them on, and if anyone's listening and would like to do so, please feel free to get in touch, the most exciting part of developing a production would be recruiting a company to play all of those parts. Everyone involved would have a decent role, and with the exception of Margaret, perhaps, nobody would feel that they were being hard done by. Everyone would have a contribution to make. But in Richard III we get the extraordinary development of a star turn, a leading role. This play belongs to Richard, and Richard alone. Unique in all of Shakespeare's plays, it is Richard that starts it, and immediately we are in his thrall. Across the length and breadth of the plays, we've had introductions by minor characters who chat about the status quo, or what's going on, or wherever the play is set. It happens from Romeo and Juliet to The Winter's Tale and beyond, and of course we know well that it happens in Hamlet. Getting the opening line is a thrill, perhaps, and a responsibility, as humorously depicted in the film of Shakespeare in Love. But Richard is the only one who gets to start his own play and keep talking. He begins with one of the most brilliant soliloquies in Shakespeare, in which he lays out precisely what he's going to do, and enlists our sympathy, or at very least our acquiescence, for everything that will follow. Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York, and all the clouds that lowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean buried. Now are our brows bound with victorious wreaths, our bruised arms hung up for monuments, our stern alarms changed to merry meetings, our dreadful marches to delightful measures. Grim-visaged war hath smoothed his wrinkled front, and now, instead of mounting barbed steeds to fright the souls of fearful adversaries, he capers nimbly in a lady's chamber to the lascivious pleasing of a lute. But I, that am not shaped for sportive tricks, nor made to court an amorous looking-glass, 
I that am rudely stamped and want love's majesty to strut before a wanton ambling nymph. I that am curtailed of this fair proportion, cheated of feature by dissembling nature, deformed, unfinished, sent before my time into this breathing world scarce half made up, and that so lamely and unfashionable that dogs bark at me as I halt by them, why, I, in this weak, piping time of peace, have no delight to pass away the time, unless to spy my shadow in the sun and descant on mine own deformity. And therefore, since I cannot prove a lover to entertain these fair, well-spoken days, I am determined to prove a villain and hate the idle pleasures of these days. Plots have I laid, inductions dangerous, by drunken prophecies, libels, and dreams, to set my brother, Clarence, and the king in deadly hate, the one against the other. And if King Edward be as true and just as I am subtle, false, and treacherous, this day should Clarence closely be mewed up about a prophecy which says that G of Edward's heirs the murderer shall be. It's perfect. Richard tells us what's happened. The war is over. The House of York has won. There's all manner of celebration which Richard disdains. He has no time for the happy activities of peacetime because he is, to use his own word, deformed. And since he cannot prove a lover, he is determined to prove a villain. Immediately there's a plot afoot. He's arranged for Clarence, his brother, to be arrested because a prophecy has said that G, G for George, Duke of Clarence, will murder Edward the new king's children. Everyone in the audience should know that G also stands for Gloucester. Richard himself is the Duke of Gloucester, and he will eventually kill Edward's sons, the princes in the tower. It's diabolical, and it's only because Richard is so forthright in his villainy that we are somehow charmed by him. There's something compelling about his being so honest. For my money, he comes from the tradition of the mystery plays in which a town's best actor would be called upon to play the devil. He always got the best lines and the best tunes, so Shakespeare is going to have a lot of fun letting this villain be the hero of a play. There was no way he wouldn't make Richard a villain, mind you. The play was written during the reign of Elizabeth I, a Tudor queen and granddaughter of Henry VII who was the Earl of Richmond until he killed Richard and took the throne. The Tudors supplanted the rule of the Plantagenets, and so it would not do for Shakespeare to portray Richard as anything other than thoroughly wicked. But he seems to have outdone himself in this. A few years ago, there was much ado about the finding of Richard's skeleton in a car park in Leicester. He had been rather hastily buried, but a team of archaeologists managed to find a skeleton, and contemporary DNA analysis, has proved fairly conclusively that it is his. Interestingly, the skeleton had a fairly severe scoliosis, confirming a significant deviation of his spine. It does not, however, suggest the limp or the withered arms that appear in the play. Shakespeare appears to have given these to Richard for good measure. 
there is an unkind, unnecessary and certainly untrue association between physical difference and personal morality. But in the play, Richard himself relishes this. His physical difference and his very unique personality align in their wickedness. As if the stunt of having this notorious king come out and introduce his own play detailing his awful plans wasn't outrageous enough, the play's second scene is more extraordinary still. A funeral cortege enters and it is the corpse of King Henry VI, attended by Lady Anne, his daughter-in-law. Almost unthinkably, Richard confirms in the presence of the body that yes, he killed Henry and he also killed Edward of Westminster, Henry's son and Anne's husband. She spits at him and calls him a litany of brilliant, horrible names. Despite all of this, over the course of this scene, Richard talks Anne into marrying him. It's a troubling, shocking, awful scene, a seduction over a regal corpse. The wickedness is sort of extreme, but I think it's very deliberate. This marriage did take place in real history, but Shakespeare condenses it to happen early in the play. It's all very well for Richard to have announced his wickedness at the top of the show. Now this is a kind of a test, really, of us, the audience. His seduction of Anne is kind of of us as well. If we are prepared to accept him, as she does, then we are his creatures for the remainder of our time with him. He's quite compelling as he speaks to her, do we find ourselves willing him to succeed, willing her to say yes to marry this monster? As the scene ends, he undercuts everything with his exit line. I'll have her, but I will not keep her long. It seems we shouldn't believe a word he says to anyone, except us in the audience, to whom he will continue to speak the truth throughout. This play is one of the longer ones. In fact, it's second only to Hamlet for the number of lines in it. The actor playing Richard has about two hours and 15 minutes of work to do. This was the first big role given to Richard Burbage and the beginning of the actor-playwright collaboration that gave us so many of the extraordinary plays and characters that they developed during their theatrical life together. Burbage was the subject of a bonus episode of the podcast quite a while back. Feel free to check it out for a very funny story of the competition between Richard Burbage and William Shakespeare that took place off stage. I've been wondering about this sense of collaboration between Shakespeare and his actors. We spoke in the last couple of sessions about the extraordinary roles of Volumnia and Cleopatra and pondered how it might have been to see them performed by boy players. Shakespeare must have had some remarkable boy actors available throughout his career. His early histories of Henry VI are so dominated by the character of Queen Margaret that he must have written them in the knowledge that someone could play her. Whoever it was did such a good job that Margaret manages to return in Richard III, haunting the play and the court with awful shouts and outbursts. In this, Shakespeare flouts history altogether. There's no way that Margaret came back. But why not, if you have a great performer and a great character? The Henry plays put Shakespeare on the map, so why not have this terrific queen come out and attempt to dominate one more play? 
the balance of roles in Richard III is unusual. There's really nobody that can hope to compete with Richard. The play is called Richard III, but he doesn't actually become the king until Act Four, and obviously he has to die at the end of Act Five. There's an enormous number of characters, including an unusually high number of women and children, and it can start to feel like a blur of would-be conspirators and competitors, all aware at some level that they can't hope to steal Richard's spotlight. This is the play that is most likely to have roles like third spear carrier, second or third murderer, and so on. Even the man that will eventually undo Richard, Richmond, doesn't even get mentioned until Act 4, and he only shows up in Act 5. As with so many of the people who are left standing at the end of a Shakespeare play, I think of Malcolm, think of those who are left at the end of King Lear, he's not terribly interesting. Shakespeare was taking no chances putting the Tudor patriarch on the stage. He arrives and he does his job, but he won't get anybody into trouble. Even Richard's dream on the eve of the play's final battle is showy. We get a parade of outraged ghosts who all appear in succession to try to frighten him and make him despair. This feels a little bit like a rehearsal for the fateful visions in Macbeth, but it can be very impressive on stage. I was lucky enough once to see a production of the play by the National Theatre in Hungary, and this was one of the most extravagant shows I've ever seen. Throughout the performance, there were cars and horses, and a huge number, it seemed, of people moving around. The real stunt was the nightmare, where everyone who had appeared in the play came back now in a white version of whatever we'd seen them wearing earlier. Not only that, a new horse was brought on, now white as well, and likewise a white replica of the car we had seen earlier. A far cry from the globe, perhaps, but very memorable. I've actually surprised myself writing this episode with the number of memories I have with this play. I learned the opening speech when I was a drama student. Indeed, I learned it thanks to a brilliant teacher who unlocked it in a really exciting way. My younger brother was in a big production when he was in secondary school, playing one of those murderers, very memorably. The job that got me through university was working in a medieval museum in Dublin, where one of my bosses insisted that I read Anthony Sher's book, Year of the King, an actor's account of playing the role, one that has been a calling card for so many over the years. Anthony Sher himself made an indelible mark on the part. His intensely physical interpretation continues to inspire and challenge anyone else brave enough to tackle Richard. As my boss insisted, the book is absolutely wonderful. Moving on from that, I even wrote my undergraduate thesis on Shakespeare in film, including the Ian McKellen film of this play, that helpfully cuts the text and gives it a very compelling update. What's most extraordinary of all in the film is that it ends with Richard jumping to his own death. It's a brave choice, again, one that has nothing to do with history, but it does honour the extravagant theatrical dominance that this character exerts. Again, like the devil in a mystery play, he is consigned to hell, and he seems to smile as he is engulfed in flames. He is in complete control right until the end. It's been quite fascinating saving Richard until this late in our journey through the plays. The influence he wields is huge, and the lessons learned from the success of this play reverberate throughout Shakespeare's career. 
it's been quite the mountain to climb from the very first book club episode about Richard II until now, 31 episodes later. If you made it through reading the play, I salute you. If you found a filmed version you enjoyed, I'd love to hear which one. And if you have both of these delights still ahead of you, I hope that this episode will have whetted your appetite. Next week, we must finally acknowledge that the end of the year is fast approaching and move to yet another kind of play. Finally, in season, we're going to read The Winter's Tale, another surprising, unexpected leap that Shakespeare makes into the unknown. Richard III may utter Shakespeare's most famous line about an animal when he cries, A horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. But our next play contains his most famous stage direction. You might know it already, but nonetheless, we'll save it. Have a read of the play. It's one I particularly enjoy, and I'll speak to you next time.